Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. If you would, go ahead and find a seat. Again, thanks for gathering here. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. Uh, if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It's my absolute privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint, and it is my great joy and it's my great privilege to open up God's word with you all uh, this morning as we continue this series called Witnesses. It's a study in the great book of Acts, and so it's this opportunity for us to sort of witness all the ways that Jesus, not only a couple thousand years ago, but today, like Jesus is building his church, not only here in Winter Park and the Orlando area, but literally all around the world, and so we get to just witness that. At the same time, we are invited to bear witness about the reality of Jesus and to invite more people into that. So we're gonna see that this morning in the text is how the church is a sent people, a missionary people, um, and what is the implication on your life and my life. If you're a follower of Christ that's gathered here this morning, this text has a lot to say to, to you and to me and what how our life should be shaped under the lordship of King Jesus. And so we're gonna be in Acts chapter eight as we've been making our way through this great book. And so here's what I wanna encourage you to do. We're gonna make our way through this verse by verse, all right? And so if you brought a Bible, please turn there. If you didn't bring a Bible, there are some paperback ones on a couple of the back tables. At any point, you can go get, get up, grab one of those. If you don't own a Bible, take that one home with you as a gift. Or you can get your phone out and you can go to cpwp.life. You swipe over the second card you'll see says message notes. Anything that's up on the screen, including the text that will be in, um, is listed there. There's space for you to click the button that says take notes or add notes and you can add your own thoughts. You can email them to yourself afterwards to remember that. And there's some great information on there. Even if you don't use that for following along with the sermon, as you scroll to the bottom, there's some great next steps. So if you're looking to plug in further, you wanna respond or you sense God's doing something in this, this place, in your heart and your life, um, I encourage you to take, make use of that. And so we're gonna take this section by section. I'm not gonna read it all at once, but we're gonna start. So Acts chapter eight, we're gonna look at the first three verses. And what we're gonna see here is the reality of suffering, of persecution, of difficulty. And so let me just set up for you in case you weren't here last week. The church has seen this amazing growth, people meeting Jesus, and yet there's opposition. There's real persecution that's beginning to happen. And the first Christian martyr, it just took place in chapter seven, that there's a man named Stephen who'd been appointed as leadership within the church and he ends up declaring a message to a group of people that, are, that have trumped up these kind of charges. They, they are bearing false witness. They're bringing things. They're saying, oh, he's against the temple. Or he's against the law. And he's against our, our customs. And, and so the people get very angry. And he begins to speak the truth of the gospel to them. And he wants them to meet Jesus. But at the end of the day, there's this obstinance. There's this unwillingness for them to surrender their lives. And instead of submitting to Jesus, they submit to their own will and their own desires. And they rush at Stephen and they end up picking up rocks and they literally hurl them at him until he dies. And even as he's dying, he's pleading that God might forgive them because he's so dialed into what Jesus did for him that he's able to offer forgiveness and, and grace to those that were doing because he, he knew that that's what Jesus had done on the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so he has that posture. He's being welcomed in by King Jesus. And so we pick up the story now kind of on the heels of this, that there's this persecution. It wasn't just Stephen. It's going to spread out now. And so here's what it tells us beginning in verse one. It says, and Saul approved of of his execution. And we're going to meet Saul again in chapter 9. And if you're wondering who that is, that's the Apostle Paul before he met Jesus. 
And Saul is there as a persecutor of the church. We'll look at his story in greater depth here in the coming weeks. But it says, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men, they buried Stephen and made a great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And think about it for a moment. Imagine you're in your home, whether you maybe you had a Bible study that's going on or there was one there the night before and Paul or Saul got word of that, got wind of that and he shows up and he's literally, it doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, he is dragging you off to prison, putting you in jail for worshiping King Jesus. It'd be like him showing up right now and being like, I see all of you and as many as us as he could get a hold of, he's dragging us off to prison, right? I mean, this ravaging, he's literally trying to tear apart Jesus's church. He's really, he's hell-bent on doing that. That's what is happening in this, this moment. This is a serious situation. And so there's this great persecution that breaks out, but yet here's the beautiful good news. It's not to minimize it. It's not to say it's not difficult because here's the reality. There's some that we're gonna learn they're scattered and they go about, but not everybody's got to scatter. Some people find themselves in prison. Many would lose their lives for the cause of Christ. And yet God in his sovereignty and in his goodness is going to work in and through this. Because I don't know if you remember this, but if we were to go all the way back, there was a promise that was made. There was a commissioning that Jesus, in his final words, before he ascended up into heaven, he told the disciples, he said, listen, I've got work for you to do, and it's not just contained to this geographic location that we're in right now called Jerusalem. He's like, it's gonna start there. I need you to hang tight. I need you to wait here because the Holy Spirit is coming. But when the Holy Spirit comes, lives are gonna get changed, and this word needs to get out. And so Acts 1.8 says this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will what? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, so that's already happened, and in Judea, surrounding her, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That this has been God's plan. This has been God's plan from the very beginning. This is why God, thousands of years before, picked a man named Abraham and said, I'm gonna make a nation out of you so that you'll be a blessing to all the nations. God's heart is always moving out, taking new territory, seeing the kingdom expand. So what does this have to do with persecution? What does this have to do with Acts chapter eight? What does Acts 1, 8 have to do with Acts chapter eight? Well, God in his sovereignty is going to use this persecution to make Acts 1, 8 happen. That what is taking place here is God's church is being pushed out and it's being scattered. Maybe a way to think about it is this, that pain, it does have a purpose. Persecution has a purpose. That God in his sovereignty and his goodness and his, his kindness in the midst of hardship, he's like, this will not thwart my plans. The gates of hell will not withstand Jesus and his church. The church is advancing. And I know there's lots of opposition, not just back then, but today, and the reality is, no, King Jesus is still on the throne, Jesus is still ruling and reigning, and Jesus is seeing his church go forth into all kinds of places where the gospel hasn't been declared or rightly understood. And so this persecution, what does it do? It leads to the fulfillment of Acts 1-8, because we're going to find in the ensuing verses that leaders and the people, the followers of Jesus, are going to end up in Samaria, just like Jesus said. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. We're beginning to see it happen. And so pain has a purpose. I want you to hear that this morning as well. You bring things in here this morning 
Now, maybe you weren't arrested for the cause of Christ, but there have been things that have weighed heavy on you. There's been difficulties in your life. And if you're like, no, actually, everything's been amazing, like, it's coming, right? Like, there will be difficulty. And to know that God is in the midst of the pain, that God wants to meet you there, and that God wants to use it, he has redemptive purposes in mind. I love what the theologian and pastor Charles Spurgeon said. He said, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. So he's saying life is full of storms and it's difficult and you feel tossed back and forth and you feel like you might be just being pounded. But the good news of the gospel is this, that God in his sovereignty and the way he uses pain is even those waves he's learned, he said, to kiss it, to embrace it, to welcome it because it pushes him further onto his dependence on Jesus who is that rock of ages. And we see this in the life of the early church. Men and women who are embracing, they're welcoming the difficulty. They're not celebrating like, ooh, we just love pain for pain's sake, but they're like, God is at work. And so they're welcoming it in because what it does is it drives them further into who they are in Christ, drives them to Jesus and to his mission. That there's a conversion to Jesus that needs to take place and then a conversion to his mission. And what was true of them is true of us. And so my prayer as we get into this text this morning, as we dive further into it, as we continue to study the book of Acts, that we would embrace this, that there's, there's a purpose in the pain and God is doing something. And God wants to work in and through you for the advancement of his church. I love the way... We talk about Saul, right? I mean, this is crazy. I'm gonna read some words out of 2 Corinthians, a letter that Saul, who became Paul, would write, who struggled with difficulties. He pleaded with the Lord for some, some things that he was tormented with to go away. But here's his disposition. Here's what he writes. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 to 10, but he said to me, the Lord is speaking to Paul. He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecution, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The message you've been bombarded with all week and every single day, you and I both, is no, no, like if we act strong, if we, if we exude strength, like that's when we're strong and we're powerful and that's what we need to, the way we need to approach things. It's like, no, no, no. The gospel frees us up to be honest and know I, I am weak. And when we embrace that weakness, when we embrace the fact that we are broken, flawed people that are clinging to the grace of King Jesus, when we understand that, then we actually have the strength to be about his mission. And so I think there was great weakness amongst the church in that, I mean, they're being persecuted, so much difficulty, and yet you see a people responding in the pain and in the hardship. And what we see then is this commissioning, this sending, this going forth. Look with me at verses four to eight. It says this, now those who were scattered, they went about preaching the word. And Philip, who we got introduced to back in chapter six, went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So what do we see taking place? That there's people now that are scattered. Acts 1-8 is happening. 
No one would have signed up to say, all right, just bring the pain. That's what, but at the end of the day, like God, there's this pain that is happening. There's this persecution. It's very real. And yet God is still sovereign over all of it. And the people now are scattered. And one of the places they go is to Samaria. So what I want to look at in these few verses for a moment is just ask like, hey, who are the people that are scattered? All right, where are they, they going? All right, like what's the deal with Samaria? Why was that such a big deal? Um, how they went about this? Like what, was, what were some of the things that were taking place? Like how did they go about mission? And then what were like the results? What do we see here in these, these verses? And so the first thing is this, like now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Yes, it zeroes in on a man named Philip who had a particular role within the church, but the language, and we can't miss this, it's saying now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And it might be better to make sure you're not associating preaching with stage and platform and headset mic and that, that whole deal, right? The language here is that men and women, whether in official church leadership or not, it was simply followers of Christ. It was the, just the, the people, some of them were probably educated and some were not. It was everybody who was a follower of Jesus, it's like everybody had the kind of status of like amateur in some ways, right? And they're just like, okay, but we've been sent, we've been scattered, we're going into this new region. We wouldn't have picked for it to happen this way, but this is where we are. We've been scattered, we're being sent. They view themselves that, that way. And it says they began preaching the word. And so again, don't picture a church service for that. It, the language here is the language of evangelism. It's they're sharing the good news. It's like they can't help but talk about it. So take the posture of somebody who does something negative with like kind of juicy gossip, right? We shouldn't gossip, but it's that sort of like, ooh, I just can't wait to tell you. Did you hear? Did you hear? It's a group of people that find themselves in a new territory and they're like, have you heard about Jesus? Can we talk about Jesus? You wouldn't believe what Jesus is doing. Imagine the people that heard this. Hey, didn't, didn't you show up? Like you're here, right? Because your friends got arrested and you were fleeing for your life. Like it doesn't look like that Jesus thing's working out all too well. And, they still shared about Jesus because they knew that there was a hope and a peace that wasn't contingent upon circumstances. They were being cast against, they were being pushed against the rock of age, they were being pushed against Jesus and finding that rock. And there's the same invitation for us. So we need to hear in this text the people, it wasn't just the, the pastors, right? It wasn't just those in a certain leadership role, it's everybody. Context might have looked different, might have been one-on-one, might have been a large crowd. We don't get all the details. It just says they went about preaching the word. And so the reality is this, that if you and I, if you're a follower of Christ, you are a missionary. You've been sent. God doesn't get anybody's address wrong. You've been determined by God in the, the, where you live, the place you inhabit, the job that you have, the, the social network that you have, all of it is by the very definite plan of God. And he wants to use you in the midst of brokenness and of pain and the circumstances of life. If you're a Christian, then you're a missionary. You are a sent one. And now where do they go? Samaria, right? You see these words up here. They they read a little strange, don't they? Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. Those are not my words, just to clarify, okay? This was a common prayer amongst the Jewish people that they would spend time daily, for one, thanking God that they weren't a Samaritan, all right, and then they would literally spend time. Imagine, of all the things that they could pray for, all the needs, one of the things they were devoted to is, Lord, do not remember the Samaritans in the resurrection. There was such animosity and hatred of the Jewish people to this group, all right, 
and we don't have time to get into all the backstory, but basically they viewed them as sort of not, not only ethnically sort of these half-breeds, all right, because it was a mixture of Jewish people with those that had come in from foreign lands, but also this weird mixture, they would say, of religious observance. They had built kind of a competing temple in their land, and so if you remember the story in John 4 of Jesus meeting the woman at the well, and she's like, ask this question to the world, we worship on this mountain, where do you guys, what, what's the proper way? That's the context for that sort of question, all right? You got these competing views and there's terrible animosity. I mean, think about it. If your morning devotion, like, hey, how was your quiet time this morning? Oh, it was great. I was praying that certain people would be forgotten in the resurrection. Like, you gotta have some level of hatred. You definitely weren't drinking decaf that morning, right? Like, you are passionate about making sure that these people are not admitted to God's kingdom. Like, we're in and they're out and we don't wanna deal with them. We would hate to see them in the resurrection. Like, that's, that's some animosity. And that's where the church goes to. All right? So we read that and like, eh, it's not that big a deal. These people hated one another. Look down their noses at one another. I mean, let me just give you one more example. This is in Luke 9, 52 to 56. Look at the heart of the disciples, right? These are, you know, we, we sometimes elevate them and like, oh, they just love Jesus and his purposes. And yeah, okay. But they also got some issues, all right? So, which encourages me. Luke 9, 52 to 56. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And so when his disciples, James and John, saw it, look at their response. They said, Lord, all right, can you imagine kind of coming up alongside Jesus like, hey, you've been rejected. I got a great idea. Jesus, let, let us take care of this. They say, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them, right? Like that's the response. But he turned and rebuked them and then they went to another village they're cranked up right I mean so it's one thing to be defensive for your friends great that they had Jesus's back so to speak in this moment but there's this posture of like ooh, can, I can't wait can we destroy them now can we call down as if they could even you know do that like come call down fire from heaven but they are like we want these people obliterated and destroyed and this is where the church goes this is where the followers of Jesus go to let me ask you then what is your posture? What is my posture toward culture? Like if we're to be a sent people, we are to be sent. We don't get to pick and choose. Like, oh God, I wanna just go amongst the people that already think like me and believe like me or vote like me, right? Like God isn't calling you just to this sort of homogenous thing. He's calling us as the church to enter in, to build relationships, to care for people. What is your posture toward the culture? So we just went through this. Some of you were in our most recent partnership class. We always talk about the, these things, but I think that a way to break this down, just ask yourself, what's your posture? There can be a church against culture. This is this posture of like, we just gotta stay huddled together. It's a big, bad world out there, forgetting that the sin problem's not just out there, it's here. Like, it's in my heart. The reason the Jewish people prayed that the Samaritans wouldn't be there in the resurrection, that's a heart issue. Should we call down fire? That's a heart issue. Church against culture is this sectarianism, this separating from the culture. Do you find yourself doing that? But there also can be church of culture, this syncretism, meaning like it's just, there's no differentiation. We're just like the culture. So whatever's popular, whatever's out there, whatever's accepted as the common practice, whatever is maybe labeled progressive, like that thing, it's just like the church that there's no difference. I don't believe that honors the heart of God either. So how do we 
enter in then. We don't want to separate, all right? At the same time, there is a calling to, to holiness and what is being different look like. There's got to be this posture of a church that's for the culture. And when we exist for the good of other people, we're able to actually enter in. I mean, this is what Jesus did, right? As long as we stay closely tethered to Jesus, we can enter in and we will be accused like he was, right? I mean, think about what they called Jesus. He's a drunkard, he's a glutton, he's a friend of sinners, right? I mean, they had very clear markers of who you were to hang out with. He talked with Samaritans when nobody else did. You think of the sexual ethic in the day and he's, he's like, wait, Jesus, do you know that this, this woman's storied past, her history, do you know that, that who's this woman that's touching you now? Like, He's like, yeah, I'm Lord of the universe. I get all that, right? Like, there's these, these moments where he's breaking down all these sorts of things, and yet he's holy, he's perfectly obedient. I mean, what does that actually look like? And so there's this call for us. We will not do it perfectly, but to follow Jesus as the ultimate missionary, to exist for the good of the culture, that we would be sent out. So we don't want to rail against it. We don't want to become just like it. But there's a way that as a sent church, as a missional people, that we would enter in. And will it be messy? Yeah, it will be. Maybe we should have chicken wings. I don't know. But anyway, um, it's going to be messy and difficult and all of that. You'll be misunderstood. But the beautiful thing is, like, this is where God has us. It's not an accident that you live in the time and the place that you do. With all the particular cultural questions that are being asked, like, God has raised you up as a follower of him to engage. Don't retreat. Let's engage. How do they go about it? It tells us very clearly in here, and we'll unpack this more in a few moments as well, but it tells us that they went and they proclaimed to them the Christ. And so they're speaking the words of the gospel. They're evangelizing. They're talking about, they're heralds of the good news. Do you know Jesus? Do you know Jesus made it? possible for you to be reconnected with the creator God. You know that Jesus has made a way. You don't have to try and earn anything. These were the conversations that they were having. Do you want to have an identity that's not dependent upon circumstances? Do you not want to feel enslaved and stuck in sin anymore? They were declaring this word, but there was also this deed that they would take place, like they were taking place, these deeds that were taking place, that they would love people, that they cared for people. Some of them certainly were miraculous, all right? So, I mean, it tells us there at the end of, uh, you know, verse seven, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. I mean, there's some amazing things that are taking place. And we can pray that those things would happen. And we can also engage in things that maybe they don't border on the miraculous, but they're still loving and caring for people. You're getting to know your neighbors. You're getting to know what their needs are. You're finding ways to serve people. It's in word and deed. And then what does it result in? Did you notice this in verse 8? I just love this. It says, so there was much joy in that city. The people showed up. And suddenly the whole town has this joy. I don't think it means that every person became a follower of Jesus, but there is this presence when God's people begin to show up and begin to follow Jesus and they begin to love people that there's a joy. And if the church were to pack up and leave that community, the, the, joy, like the joy in that place would go down, all right? Like that's what's being communicated here. What a beautiful picture that you have people that have shown up and they're loving and they're caring and they're serving and they're talking about Jesus and they're breaking through all sorts of cultural barriers. And they're like, listen, the dividing wall of hostility, this is what Paul would talk about in Ephesians 2, like it's gone. Like you're our brothers and our sisters. Like we're united in Christ. Like we can be family. 
even people coming from very, very different backgrounds. And there was much joy in the city. I mean, imagine for a moment, imagine if that was how our communities felt, that there was joy in Winter Park and Maitland and Orlando and Castleberry and Oviedo or where, wherever, Altamont Springs, wherever home is for you, right? That there's much joy in the city, that there's something tangibly that's taking place in the culture where people are meeting Jesus, people are experiencing, just being served. Even if they don't believe what you believe yet, there's something in there. They're like, wow, there's things that are changing in our community to have this sort of joy. So if we're going to have that, here's the last thing that we got to look at. We get this really interesting sort of case study here, all right? It's a case study really kind of in the negative, um, as far as I can tell from the, from the text. It doesn't give us a ton of detail, but there is a picture here. If we're going to be this sort of church, what does it look like to actually surrender to Jesus? So look with me at starting up in verse 9. It tells us a specific story of a man that has an encounter with God, God's people, Philip, all right? Um, later on with some of the other apostles who show up. Verse nine says, but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria. So that's his gig. He's the magician, all right? Saying that he himself was somebody great, all right? So he performed some sort of sorcery, some, probably some sort of witchcraft. We don't know all the details, but, but this man is into that stuff. He clearly, as we'll learn, is into power and demonstrations of power. So when he observes like what Philip and the others, are, you know, what the things that are happening, like he, he's very much paying attention, all right? And so it tells us, though, he also, though, saying that he himself was somebody great. So apparently he wasn't the most humble guy around. He's like, hey, you need to know me because I'm great. I'm awesome, all right? So he's letting people know that. It says, they all paid attention to him, verse 10, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he does have some sort of abilities, apparently. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And even, this is verse 13, even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So we'll just stop there for a moment. So far, so good, right? We're going to come back to Simon in a moment. But we learn a bit of his backstory. And it's this really interesting sort of case study, I think, that we get of what does it look like? What should our response to this good news, the gospel? If we're going to be the church that's sent, like, are we a people that actually will surrender? All right, so we'll come back to Simon in just a moment. So we saw that in 9 to 13. But look with me now at verses 14 to 17. There's something that's unique that's happening here that we need to explain because I think it raises some questions. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So like, hey, you guys go investigate. Like the gospel had never gone forth in this area. And remember, the apostles had stayed back in Jerusalem to care for the people that were there. So they sent Peter and John, verse 15, who came down and they prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so we just need to, I think this raises some questions, all right? So just right here in the middle, there's this really odd sort of story. And what we need to see, this is not normative, this is just a particular situational thing that's happening. So let me see if I can explain this for a moment. When somebody becomes a follower of Jesus, when you believe, you receive the Holy Spirit, that's an instant thing. There's not a delay there. 
There's no demonstration that you have to do that there's the second thing to really prove that you're a real Christian or something. That's, so this text sometimes can get re, read and people look at it and like, yep, so, well, unless you now start having kind of certain gifts of the spirit, perhaps, then you really aren't necessarily in with the family of God or you're like the JV team somehow, right? Like that's kind of how it's, how it's viewed. And I don't believe that's correct. What is so unique here, and this is why this is just a unique thing to this time and this place, is this is God saying, hey, I know that people are gonna doubt that the good news that Jesus, like who he is, has gone forth into a place like Samaria. People are gonna be like, no, they're gonna ridicule it, they're gonna try and dismiss that. And so in this time and place, in just a unique moment, I believe the Lord keeps the Holy Spirit from descending on the people until Peter and John can show up and they pray and it's this confirmation, ah, the Lord is doing what he said he was gonna do. The gospel is going forth and it's for all peoples that anybody can get in on this. And so the delay is this means of validating, no, these people, they're in. Nobody can argue it. Like Peter and John, the apostles, right? Like they confirmed it, they saw it, they prayed for the spirit. These people are welcomed. There's more we could get into with this, but just we'll come back now to Simon, who we met. All right, so here you get this little kind of theological thing, what's happening there. All right, so that's why the delay. But now look at, as we pick back up in 14 and 15, here's what it says about Simon, who we met just a few verses earlier, okay? So we jump down here. If we'll pick back up, um, we'll start in um, verse 17, it says, they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 18. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, right? This is kind of odd, but here's this man. He's like, ooh, I want in on that. He gets his wallet out immediately. He's like, can I Venmo you? Like, I, I just, I need in on this, right? And so he says he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now look at Peter's response. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Simon, what's up with this guy? Is he a true follower? Is he not? I think there's reason to believe from the text. And we don't know how it, how it played out. But that initial, like, oh, I believe he even got baptized, the fact that he thought he could earn it, that he could buy the power of God, it communicates. And Peter's saying, your, your heart is not right. It's fair to conclude like this man hadn't really encountered Jesus, that he was walking around with this unwillingness to really surrender to Jesus. Like it's possible to want the things of God without really desiring God. I want the benefit of it. Let me give you an example, maybe even how this manifests itself, right? Like sometimes families, and maybe this is your story, and God, I'm praying, will work through it. But even sometimes, like, well, I want for my kids, for them to grow up in kind of a religious household or to understand so that people come back to church once they have kids. And you're just hoping that somehow some sort of like, you know, Jesus pixie dust will land on your kids and they'll be okay, 
right? Now, you should care for your kids, but if the view is, I'm here just so my kids get a little bit of blessing, you're missing it. You're wanting the blessing of God without God himself. Like, God wants you to surrender to him, to give your life to him, and then in turn, you would be part of discipling your children. There's all kinds of ways that sometimes we get in this view of like, well, I want this, but I don't really wanna give this up. We have a massive problem with surrender. I have a massive problem with surrender. As a follower of Jesus, there is this angst, and I think there's this rub here of like, Jesus wants to be Lord of all areas of life. We wanna compartmentalize things. We wanna say, Jesus, I'll give you this. I'll give you, I'll give you an hour and 15 minutes on, on Sunday, all right? I'll give you maybe one hour or two hours a week for a Bible study and some occasional things, but that's it. My job is my own, my marriage, relationships, recreational pursuits, and Jesus is saying, no. You're to surrender to me. It all belongs to me. And I want you to enjoy those good gifts. But when you try and make them an ultimate thing, you're missing it. You need to surrender to me. And there's this picture here of Simon that I think we shouldn't just look at and be like, I can't believe he tried to do that. The reality is we are people that are unwilling to surrender. I was driving after a meeting a couple of weeks ago. I was driving down, uh, I think it's Morse uh, Avenue or Morse Boulevard um, from 1792, kind of heading back east. True confession was leaving Chewy's, all right? So I was coming back. I'm in that just chips and salsa, bloated, lots of salt coma that happens after Chewy's, just this amazing experience. And I'm, I'm talking on, on the phone. I'm driving down Morse and I see this vehicle, this SUV, this white SUV, just a little bit on, on ahead of me. And then in a moment, the person who was on the phone, I felt bad for them because all of a sudden they hear me go, whoa, what, what's happening? And I like let out, let out this scream um, because the car in front of me had this beautiful, um, I don't know what kind, but this beautiful little dog um, that was doing his you know, head out, out the window. And then going about 30 down Morris, that dog just like, whoop, I'm out. And just like this, there was just this fur ball just like flying down, down, down the road, right? And like, wait, what, what is happening, right? Um, and then I need to tell you that it, it seemed to all resolve because people, if I skip this part, I'd be like, what happened to the dog, right? Um, and so um, it literally hit the sidewalk, like landed on its feet somehow and ran up to a tree, lifted its leg, and did its thing, all right? Um, and so I was like, I guess it's all working out. But um, and the, you know the people like they you know they're jumping out of the car they're running trying trying to get their dog um, now it's obviously comical thankfully the dog appeared to be okay and the dog's like you didn't let me do my business I just got to go um, but that picture all right I think of I'm just gonna launch out I'm just gonna do my my thing like that dog was just like no like I'm Lord of my life like I want to get out this window you can't hold me back you can't contain me all right and just going to regardless of the danger just like I'm going to launch out and I think that's unfortunately a picture of my heart my life I think it's a picture of your heart your life if we're honest like there's this unwillingness to surrender and just like no I'm gonna launch out and do my own thing never asking Lord what do you have for me not fully surrendering and just like, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Car's going 30 down the road, I don't care, I'm gonna jump out. Like, is that the disposition of your heart? Is it the disposition of my heart? But do you see where this goes? Maybe think about it this way, like trying to buy your way, trying to earn your way. Did you notice the language that's used? I mean, it's this, this gall of bitterness and it says that he's in bondage. Peter in love tells Simon, he's not trying to kick him down. He's not trying to make fun of him. He's like, listen, man, like, 
you have a mindset of like you're still trying to earn it, you're trying to buy your way in, it's an old, tired story. It's a religious story of I can earn, I need to add, I need to do the right thing. I, maybe you're not trying to buy it with, with money, but you're trying to earn the affections of God. Think that somehow he's pleased by you modifying your behavior. And you know where it ends up? And just bitterness, because at the end of the day, you might be trying to buy your way, thinking you're entitled to certain things. And guess what? You don't always get what you've worked hard for. And then bitterness begins to creep in. Because it's not just that you don't get what you've worked hard for, it's also that other people who probably, in your mind, didn't work as hard as you've been working, they get the thing. And now there's this bitterness, and now we're just stuck, and now we don't know what to do, and now there's no joy in the city. There's no joy in your heart and in my heart. And it leads to this bondage where we are enslaved to sin. We're enslaved to living you know, according to self instead of submitting and surrendering to King Jesus. Like there's one throne and Jesus is on it. He doesn't have room for you and I to just say, hey, Jesus, scoot over a little bit. Like it's his throne. And we're to fall at his feet and to worship him. But trying to buy your way, this mindset, this lack of surrender, this jumping out the window saying, I'm gonna do what I wanna do when I wanna do it, it leads to bitterness and bondage. But the good news of the gospel is that surrendering to Jesus is what actually brings peace. It actually brings salvation. And we don't know how the story ended for Simon. I wish I knew. Did he surrender? Did he really repent? I don't know, but you can answer the question for yourself. Have you surrendered? Have you repented to say, I'm going to move in a new direction? Jesus is Lord of my life. Jesus is the king. Instead of you trying to be sovereign, instead of me trying to be sovereign, have you actually surrendered? Because that's what brings salvation. I love the way Paul would write this to the Galatian church in Galatians chapter five, verse one. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's a language here, don't submit, don't surrender to a yoke of slavery. There was a way you were trying to live, trying to buy, trying to earn, down kind of this religious treadmill. It's like, why would you take that yoke? Why would you take that burden on again? It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. When Jesus submitted to the will of the Father, when he said, not my will, but yours be done, and he went to the cross and he died in your place and in my place, when he submitted, that allows you and I now to actually gladly surrender to the king to gladly surrender to Jesus and say, I want in on that life. It's better than anything that I could try and earn on my own. I can't purchase that, but Jesus has purchased salvation. It's for freedom that Christ has set us free. Why would we go back into this old way? And I think Simon was this man who was caught up and just, he'd been so used to like what he did and what he achieved and telling everybody that he was great. And that same thing plays out if we're honest, what goes on in our hearts and there's this invitation, will we actually surrender? When we see then that Jesus not only surrendered to the Father and that led him to the cross, we also see ultimately that Jesus was the one that was sent. And when he was actually scattered, when his body was literally ripped apart so that you and I could be brought into the family, that allows us then to be scattered for the good of other people, to be sent, to go and give up of our time and our talent and our energies and our resources for the good of other people. When you see what Jesus has done for you, it motivates mission. It's like, Lord, I surrender to you. And in that place... That's when joy comes in your life, in the life of your friends, in the life of your community, ultimately spilling out to this city when there's a group of people that are surrendered to King Jesus. And so what I want to do, I want to introduce something for just a moment here.
as we close, and we'll talk about this more next week, but really chapter 8 is this beautiful exposition of you're seeing the heart of God for people to meet him, to find life, and a calling for us to engage in evangelism, and to be a people that care about the good of other people. And so I want to talk about it in this way. You could think of it in a number of different ways, but I want to refer to this in hopes that you might remember these things and a challenge to before us. And we'll talk about this more next week as well. But to think Mission 365, okay? And so that's every day of the year. It isn't just once in a while. It's we are a people sent on mission each and every single day. But I want us to think in some categories about like what those numbers could stand for, just as a way to sort of organize your, your thoughts and our efforts, because the great tendency is to say, yep, that sounds good, but not live with any sort of intentionality. I know that's where I am oftentimes. And so the three, here's what I want you to be thinking through and praying through. Like if, if you're a follower of Jesus, who are three people? Who are three people you know that they don't know Jesus? They have not surrendered their life to him. So who are three people. And I'll tell you some practical things that you can do for them in a moment. But be thinking through who are three. And the way you come up with the, the straight, now it can be more, if you're like, I got four, like, okay, you're extra awesome. That's amazing. All right. Um, or if you're, I only got two. It, it, the point is not so much the number, although it does work nicely for 365. Okay. But, um, but you can have more than three, less than three. But the, the call here is we got to engage. Like there's a world that needs Jesus. So who are three people? And maybe be thinking about it this way. Then the six is we all have various networks. And so be thinking through at this level, like who, familial, like who's in your family maybe that doesn't know Jesus? Maybe everybody, praise God, in your family does, okay? So maybe that network is, okay, that, that one's not relevant to you. Okay, that's fine. But who's in your family? What about vocationally, meaning like the people that you work with? Who are people there that may not know Jesus? Think commercially, here's what I mean by that. The, you've got, maybe you're a regular at a particular coffee shop or a restaurant, so you always see the same server, you, the same barista, or whatever it happens to be. The, you go and you shop at whatever grocery store you shop at, all right? And the person that checks you, maybe you are intentional about always going at the same time so that you might run into the same people. Like, who in kind of the commercial world in which you live, all right? If you're like, oh, I order everything on Amazon, I don't know what to do for you, okay? But um, you probably shop somewhere at some point, okay? Um, commercial. Then geographical, like who do you live around? Like who is your, like your actual physical neighbors, all right? Be thinking about that and praying through those things. Some of you have a network recreationally, meaning, all right, you're on a sports team or your kids are on a sports team, all right? So how might we redeem those, those things? It's great that your kid does this and we hope that they, that they do well, but what if God's wanting to do more than just them acquiring skills in a particular sport. How could you use that sort of network? Like there's people there, image bearers, that need to meet Jesus. And then by social, I'm specifically, I mean, kind of all of it's social, but social thinking at particular, like attention is given in the social media realm. I don't know how this is all going to look, but if we as the church ignore that, we are missing out on a huge opportunity to actually engage people. And so there's, I know the reality, some of you have people you've connected with through different social networks, and it's like, oh, it might have started out in the digital realm, but it can actually lead to flesh and blood relationship, all right? So that's the six. And so here's what I want to put before you as we close. What are five things then, and this is all at cpwp.life, so you don't have to at the message notes, but maybe you just need to start here. Maybe you're not ready for number five to explicitly share the gospel with them. Maybe that terrifies you. Okay, well, you can start with this. Those three people that are comprised of some of the, the networks that you have, 
Will you commit to praying for them? So that's the first place to start. I want to challenge you to find a way then, whoever you've identified, how can you serve them? We see that here in Acts 8, right? Yeah, they preach the the word, but they're also coming alongside and just seeking very practical ways to, to meet some of the needs. How can you serve people? As things begin to develop, and we'll help you with this as a church, but give them gospel-centered resources. This might mean, hey, you weren't here at church this morning, but I heard this sermon. Maybe, you know, that's why we post those things, all right? That it's there. You listen to something. You read a blog post. There's some sermon you heard that's way better than the one you heard at church somewhere. Send it to them. That's fine, right? Um, What books, what resources, what little pamphlets? Like, there are good gospel-centered resources. And just asking somebody, hey, would you be willing to read this, to forward that on to somebody? And then there's a call to invite them. You might invite them to church. You might invite them over for dinner. You might invite them in one of the groups that you're part of. I want to put this on your radar. In early January, as we get our next round of groups going, we're going to be offering a class called Christianity Explored. And it is, the hope is for you to bring friends to, to explore. We're going to look at the Gospel of Mark and just walk through for seven, eight weeks about like, the life of Jesus. So who do you know that you might be able to invite to that? And ultimately, there's this, will you speak the gospel to them? An opportunity to share that. And I know some of you might be like, I don't know know what to do with that. Like, that's part of our job as the church to train and equip you for that. All right. But these other things, I bet you can pray for people and serve people. All right. And even if you feel like you can't share the gospel, here's the beautiful good news. God promises, hey, I'm going to put you in situations. I'm going to give you the words to speak. And you might feel like a fool and you might think, man, that didn't come out right at all and God will still work. He will take your efforts and he will honor that and he'll say, listen, at the end of the day, I can use whoever I want to proclaim this, but you get the joy of participating. And so I'm gonna close this in prayer and I wanna give you a moment just to reflect on these things. I wanna ask you, are you surrendered to Jesus and are you surrendered to his mission? So maybe you're here and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I pray that you might meet Jesus today. There's gonna be people back in the back corner as part of our prayer team. If you need somebody to pray with you, pray for you, pray over you, come make use of that. But I wanna give us a moment here just to, to reflect, to be thinking through, and maybe who are the three people? Maybe you don't know three. Maybe you gotta start there. It's gotta be a repentance, Jesus. I don't know anybody that's not a follower of you, and I'm really sorry for that. And what would it look like to engage? So surrender to Jesus and then surrender to his mission. Let's be a church that engages in mission 365. Imagine the joy that could exist in our city. So let me pray for us and we'll continue in our service in a moment. Father, thank you for sending your son as the ultimate missionary. And thank you that you've invited us to participate, to be used by you as a sent people But God, we can't do that unless we are surrendered to you. And so I pray that whatever strongholds the enemy still has in our lives, things that we think, I can't possibly have joy or satisfaction if I give that over to the Lord, would you free us of that mentality? Would you free us of a mentality that thinks that we've got to, we've got to buy, we've got to earn, that we, um, God, would you get us off that treadmill of just religious performance? Would you lead us, Holy Spirit, in repentance? May we surrender to you and find joy there and that we might surrender to your mission, that we would be used by you for the good of other people. And so, Father, we ask in these moments now, as we reflect, as we pray silently, as we contemplate these things, God, ask that your spirit would be present, leading and guiding us. And God, we pray that you would get your glory 
and that we as your people, that we would experience a great joy. And so hear our prayers now. In Jesus' name, amen.